if you will, turn in your Bibles to Acts chapter 27 as we uh, consider perhaps one of the most exciting uh, passages or chapters in, in really in all of Scripture. It is... Uh, It's a roller coaster ride. Um, it is a chapter that even literary people who, uh, literary experts look at the chapter 27 and say, oh my goodness, what a great story. It is one that captures our attention. It is vivid in its details. It is certainly, like I said, one of the most exciting and vivid narratives in all of Scripture. So, it should present some excitement for us today. Um, if you are um, not an adult here today, um, you probably want to get your yellow sheet in the back uh, pew and fill that in. Um, but this one here should be, our, this chapter should be a blessing. Let me give you a little bit of preview of where we're going to go and also just a, a quick just a quick little heads up. Um, we only have, a, I usually do PowerPoint slides because I think that it's helpful for us. And um, we only have three today. And the reason is, is because you're going to need a map. And so I am going to provide you with a map to help you out uh, as we go through this. But the account in chapter 27 is really begins the culmination of the book of Acts. Acts has 28 chapters. We're only going to be here for a few more weeks and then off to the Old Testament and the book of Numbers. All right. So we're, we're wrapping up the book of Acts. And um, I, I entitled the, 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 the sermon series, The Triumph of the Gospel. And I am convinced that that is the central theme of the book of Acts. This idea of the triumph of the gospel. Triumphalism is a major theme, not only in the entire book, but we'll see it here in chapter 27. Again and again, the apostles we are found in these extreme circumstances. They are facing angry mobs or death sentences or the threat of compromise and they are delivered and they are delivered not because of who they are but because of what they proclaim. It is not the apostles who triumph but the gospel that triumphs. A great example is Stephen. Stephen gave his life to bear witness to the gospel and through his death the message of Christ spreads. So this is no mere human triumphalism but rather it is God who is triumphant. And this will be very clear in today's passage. Paul is delivered from a shipwreck, not because we just need to rescue Paul because he's a Christian. Paul is being rescued from a shipwreck because he has a message to proclaim. God has called him to Rome to proclaim the gospel in Rome. And to Rome he will go. He will get to Rome to proclaim the gospel. And no storm will hinder that triumph. This is clear today, and so we will see this theme of triumphalism going through uh, this chapter. Let me just give you an idea as we look ahead as to where some of the themes I, I hope to uh, I hope that we'll encounter today. Number one, we can't really study this passage of text without commenting a bit on uh, God's providence. That is, God is in control of this whole chapter, everything that happens in this chapter, God is utterly in control. God is in control of the storm. And I would even say that God is the source of the storm. And he controls the storm for his glory and for his purposes. God actually ends up bringing men to an end of themselves that he might be sufficient. He might be seen as sufficient. So when all hope fades, God is sufficient. Another main theme that we uh, will we'll discuss a little bit later is the that the pre, that the Christian presence is a gift in a decaying world. That the presence of believers in a decaying world is actually a gift to the world. God has given us as a preserving agent, and and I'll unpack that. Um, much later as we get towards the end of the message. And, and finally, we should look at this, that 
the Christian response to crisis should differ from the worldly response. And so I hope we'll maybe gain a little bit of insight and maybe some application there that the Christian response to crisis should differ from the world's response to crisis. And I don't know, most people are saying we're kind of in a crisis right now. But what is our response? What is the, what is the Christian's response to what's going around, on around us? So the way I'm going to approach this message today, there are going to be seven big movements Um, through this passage of text. So what I want to do is I'm just going to take you on the journey. We're just going to journey with Paul and Luke and Aristarchus and and Justice, and we're going to just kind of move along. We're going to travel with them through the ups and downs of this journey. And when we get to the end, when basically we are going to crash land on, well, we're not going to actually crash land yet. We're going to be jumping in off the ship into the ocean. That's how we'll end as we, after we kind of jump ship and begin our swim to shore, um, I'll make a few observations as to uh, where I hope we will go, um, what I think will be relevant for us. So with that, let me see if I can find my little pointer and things get moved around. And I think I got it and I think it's going to work. There it is. All right. So if you will uh, follow along with me as I read our text, we'll read the entire chapter of chapter 27 today and listen to the inerrant word of God. And when it was decided that we should sail for Italy, they delivered Paul and some other prisoners to a centurion of the Augustan cohort named Julius and embarking in a ship of Adramidium, which was about to sail to the ports along the coast of Asia, we put out to sea, accompanied by Aristarchus, a Macedonian from Thessalonica. The next day we put in at Sidon, and Julius treated Paul kindly, and gave him leave to go to his friends to be cared for. And putting out to sea, from there we sailed under the lee of Cyprus, because the winds were against us. And when We had sailed across the open sea along the coast of Cilicia and Pamphylia. We came to Myra in Lycia. There, the centurion found a ship of Alexandria sailing for Italy and put us on board. We sailed slowly for a number of days and arrived with difficulty off Nidus. And the wind did not allow us to go farther. We sailed under the lee of Crete off of Siloam. Coasting along with it with difficulty, we came to a place called Fair Havens, near which was the city of Lycia. Since much time had passed and the voyage was now dangerous, because even the fast was already over, Paul advised them, saying, Sirs, I perceive that voyage will be with injury and much loss, not only of the cargo and ship, but also for our own lives. But the centurion paid more attention to the pilot and the owner of the ship than to what Paul said. And because the harbor was not, a suitable, was not suitable to spend the winter in, the majority decided to put out to sea from there on the chance that somehow they could reach Phoenix, a harbor of Crete, facing both southwest and northwest and spend the winter there. Now, when the south wind blew gently, supposing that they had obtained their purpose, they weighed anchor and sailed along Crete close to the shore. But soon a tempestuous wind called a northeaster struck down from the island, and when the ship was caught and could not face the wind, we gave way to it and were driven along, running under the lee of a small island called Cauda. We managed with difficulty to secure the ship's boat. After hoisting it up, they used supports to undergird the ship. Then, fearing that they would run aground on the Sirtis, they lowered the gear, and thus they were driven along. Since we were violently storm-tossed, they began the next day to jettison the cargo. And on the third day, they they threw the ship's tackle overboard with their own hands. When neither sun nor moon, sun nor stars appeared for many days, and no small tempest lay on us, all hope of our being saved was at last abandoned. Since they had been without food for a long time, Paul stood up among them and said, Men, you should have listened to me and not set sail from Crete and incurred this injury and loss. Yet now I urge you to take heart, for there will be no loss of life among you, but only of the ship. For this very night there stood before me an angel of the God to whom I belong, whom I worship. And he said, do not be afraid, Paul. You must stand before Caesar. 
And behold, God has granted you all those who sail with you. So take heart, for I have faith in God that it will be exactly as I have been told, but we must run aground on some island. When the 14th night night had come, as we were being driven across the Adriatic Sea about midnight, the sailors suspected that they were nearing land. So they took a sounding and found 20 fathoms. A little further on, they took a sounding again and found 15 fathoms. And fearing that we might run on the rocks, they let down four anchors from the stern and prayed for day to come. And as the sailors were seeking to escape the ship and had lowered the ship's boat into the sea under the pretense of laying out anchors from the bow, Paul said to the centurion and the soldiers, unless these men stay in the ship, you cannot be saved. When the soldiers cut away the ropes of the ship's boat and let it go. As day was about to dawn, Paul urged them to take some food, saying, Today is the 14th day, and you have continued in suspense and without food, having taken nothing. Therefore, I urge you, take some food, for it will give you strength, for not a hair is to perish from the head of any of you. And when he had said these things, he took bread, and giving thanks to God in the presence of all, he broke it, and he began to eat. And they all were encouraged and ate some food themselves. We were in all 276 persons in the ship. And when they had eaten enough, they lightened the ship, throwing the wheat into the sea. Now, when it was day, they did not recognize the land, but they noticed a bay with a beach on it. And they planned, if possible, to run the ship ashore. So they cast it off the anchors and left them in the sea, at the same time loosening the ropes that tied the rudders, then hoisting the foresail to the wind, they made for the beach. But striking a reef, they ran the vessel aground, the bow struck, the bow struck, and remained immovable, and the stern was being broken up by the surf. The soldiers' plan was to kill the prisoners, lest any should swim away and escape. But the centurion, wishing to save Paul, kept them from carrying out their plan. He ordered those who could swim to jump overboard first and make for the land, and the rest on the planks or on pieces of the ship. And so it was that all were brought safely to the land. May the Lord bless the reading and hearing of his word. So, like I said, I'm just going to kind of run through this journey and then we'll uh, pull out some some themes that I think might be helpful for us. So the journey begins. The journey begins. Uh, Paul has appealed his case to Rome. Remember, he's been in a Caesarean prison, basically a Caesarea um, down in here. He's been in a Caesarean prison for about two years. He's had multiple trials. Nobody knows what to do with Paul. Nobody thinks he's guilty except the Jews. The Jews want to kill him. The Romans don't want the Jews to kill him, but they don't have any crimes against him. So anyways, they basically, Paul's appealed to Caesar and they're like going, good, we can just get rid of Paul and now we don't have to deal with it. So now they're sending Paul and uh, a number of other people. There are some other prisoners on board and they're sending them off to Rome. And uh, the journey then begins on this trade ship from Admidium. Actually, Admidium is way up in here, um, way up here in northern Asia. And so this would have been a coasting vessel that just kind of sails along the coast and stops and picks up and drops off cargoes and people and passengers, those types of things. And so they they get on this ship and they begin their uh, slow journey towards uh, eventually to arrive in Rome. I do want you to notice that um, this begins again, one of the we passages, right? So what does, uh, when this is being written and it says we boarded the ship, that means Luke is now with Paul again. So once again, Luke is on this ship um, with Paul. Uh, We also have, uh, uh, so Luke is on board along with a guy by the name of Aristarchus. And Aristarchus uh, had traveled with Paul from Asia when they came to Jerusalem. You'll see that in Acts chapter 20, verse 4, and in Colossians 4.10. Your notes say 3.10, but it's actually 4.10. Um, in Acts chapter 4.10, we actually learn that Aristarchus is a prisoner with Paul. He's a fellow prisoner. So, um, that, uh, so that, anyways, and we also see Aristarchus and Philemon in chapter 24. So Luke and Paul and Aristarchus are traveling together, and they sail north up here to Sidon, And when they stop at Sidon, um, 
the centurion who's kind of in charge of all of this allows Paul um, to go inland, actually quite some distance, to visit some friends. And um, so they go and they, they, they visit some friends and it says, basically, they, they, they met Paul's needs. Here's the thing. When you were a prisoner, you, uh, the state didn't provide for you. So if you're a prisoner on this ship, it's not like Rome is going to take care of you. You were required to take care of your own needs. So quite likely what's going on here is that they are caring for Paul. It's a good possibility that they are helping him with some food, maybe some, some supplies for both, for all of the three passengers involved. And so we have Luke, we have uh, Aristarchus, we have Paul. They travel inland, they meet some of the brothers, and the church basically provides for uh, or at least assists in the journey that Paul and these men are going to take. And... Um, we certainly note how kind this centurion, trusting this centurion is. He certainly has a respect for Paul, which I found was interesting because um, looks very favorable towards centurions. Um, governors, not so much. Kings, not so much. But Luke and really even some of the other gospel writers seem to really like the Roman centurions. In fact, most of the time in the Bible, they're always spoken of as in a positive way. And so this, that's neither here nor there. I just thought it was interesting. So it's for free. So um, they leave Sidon and they travel. And you should note that they're traveling with difficulty. In fact, over and over again, we see that this is a difficult journey. The, 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 the winds are not favorable for them. And um, so travel is difficult. They get over here to Mira. And at this point, um, they find a grain ship. And we're pretty certain it's a grain ship that was going to go to Italy. Um, and one of the reasons we think it's a grain ship is because that would have been the type of ship going to Italy. And also, as we get towards the end of this chapter, what did they do? They threw the weight or they threw the wheat overboard. So more likely than not, grain comes out of Egypt down here in Alexandria. It would have been shipped north. And then from here, they would have taken it over here to Italy. So they get on a ship, a grain ship. These were massive ships. All right. Huge, huge ships. And they were great for carrying cargo and people. They were terrible as far as being able to maneuver or attack uh, against the wind. As long as everything was favorable, they were stable ships. As soon as anything got contrary, they didn't do very well. So they're now on this big ship. It's a cumbersome boat, um, but it's... Uh, it's going to, to Italy. So they're on board. And um, and so then they, they kind of travel south down this way and they go to Crete. Normally a ship would have gone down to Crete and followed along the north side of Crete. But because of the wind, they come down below Crete and they get shelter from the wind and they end up at this little place called Fair Havens. And... Um, it's here at Fairhavens that they need to make a decision. And the text tells us that it's already late in the season that the fast has already um, happened. That would have been the, um, the Day of Atonement. That fast has already gone by. Now, here's the thing. Here's what we know. This is 59 AD. We can be... I'm probably 95% certain this is 59 AD. Um, and we know that through a number of different things. We know when Festus, um, through archaeological records, we know when Festus became governor. Um, he came, became governor in the spring of 59 A.D. Um, and more likely than not, Paul, this is now 59 A.D. Knowing that it's 59 A.D., we also know that the fast occurred on October 5th. So this is mid-October. And it's very late in the season. Travel on the Mediterranean was considered dangerous in late September through early October. That's when it's dangerous. It's mid-October. And travel on the Mediterranean ceased in November. Nobody, tra nobody traveled by sea um, at once November hits. And so this is mid-October. And you can already tell they've had a difficult time getting where they're getting. So here's the plan. What do we do? At this point, they're not planning to get to Rome. 
They know they can't get all the way over here to Italy. So what they want to do is we're going to stay. We're going to winter on the island of Crete. But here's the problem with where they're at. Fairhavens has a, the, the way that the uh, harbor faces is going to be buffeted by the winter winds and it's probably going to do great damage to the ship. So they don't want to stay in Fairhavens. However, if they go just 60 miles over here to Phoenix, it's a half a day journey, day journey at the most. If they go just 60 miles, it's a great harbor, and the ship will winter well there. Um, I think it's a little bit bigger town, so the sailors will have more to do. But anyways, it's much better for to protect the ship. And so, listen, should we stay here, or should we travel the 60 miles, the half a day to a day, to get to Phoenix? And Paul says, don't go. I perceive that this is going to be a bad decision. Remain here. And uh, Paul says, I perceive that if we go, there's going to be a loss of life and ship. So don't go. And as you think about this, you might initially think, well, why would anybody listen to Paul? Paul's a rabbi theologian missionary. What does a rabbi theologian missionary know about sailing? Well, if you calculate, and some people have, um, Paul has actually now traveled thousands of miles by ocean. Paul's a very seasoned sailor. He knows. In fact, by this time, he's already written 2 Corinthians. And if you read in 2 Corinthians, he says this. I've been shipwrecked three times. I've been, on, I've been floating on the ocean three times. Paul is not only a seasoned sailor. Paul is, knows what it is to be shipwrecked. He's been shipwrecked three times. He's going, let's not make it a fourth. Well, that's his protest. Um, And so he gets overruled. The owner of the ship and the um, centurion and uh, the people in charge say, nope, we we need to go. And here's one of the things. Like I said, only 60 miles. And what the text says is that a south wind began to blow. So a south wind is coming up this way. It's going to push the ship up against the the island. And so that's a very, very favorable wind. It's going to push us against the the island. This is going to help us get there. We're going to be there in half a day by noon. And we're going to be in, in Phoenix and everything's going to be great. We'll spend the winter there. Life is good. So off they go. We saw this nice south wind come up. This is a good omen. Let's go. Well, they don't get very far before the south wind turns into a northeaster. The wind starts coming down this way. There are 7,000 foot mountains here on Crete and the winds come down those mountains and begin to blow the ship um, out into the Mediterranean Sea. And as I said, these are not maneuverable ships. They do not do well in such that they don't tack well against the wind. Um, when it was a nice, favorable south wind, they could, they could tack against that and, and, and maneuver the boat, but they do not do well when the winds get high and the winds become contrary. So this big ship is no match for the wind, and the sailors begin to throw everything overboard. They're doing everything they possibly can to, uh, um, to get control of the ship. It says that they are afraid of getting down here, of landing here in the Sirtis. Um, the Sirtis, these are like sandbanks. Um, and it was a ship's graveyard. So ships go here, they get stuck on the sand, and the waves break them up. They're too far away from shore, and everybody basically perishes. So now they know they're getting pushed this way, and they're afraid. They're just throwing stuff overboard, trying to lighten the ships, trying to get control of it. Um, their human effort is incapable of overriding this, these powerful winds. And so we see here that their human skill, they basically they come to an end of themselves. There's really nothing they can do. They gave themselves up to the winds. All we can do is float along. The sailors, um, it says that there is no sun or stars. Well, you remember, they don't have GPS. How do they, gar- how do they navigate? With the sun and the stars, there is no, they, know, they don't even know where they are. They're just floundering out in the middle of the ocean. Let me assure you, they have no idea where they are, and God, they, have not been, they are not off of God's radar. He knows exactly where they are. 
And I put this out there. The sovereignty of God is a comfort to us. He knows exactly where we are. The storms do not befuddle him. Well, at this point, Paul begins to take charge. He stands up and he says, Men, you should have listened to me. Now, I don't think that this is so much an I told you so, though maybe there's just a little bit of an I told you so. But I think really what's going on here is Paul is making certain, this is an affirmation of his credibility. In other words, you should have listened to me. My words carry weight. I am not just some idiot prisoner going to be executed in Rome. I know what I'm talking about. My words have, you should have listened to me. We wouldn't be in this mess if you had listened to me. Now, what I'm about to say, listen up. And guess what? They do. In fact, at this point, Paul really becomes the captain of the ship. Paul pretty much takes over as far as how things go. The, the, the Roman centurion begins to listen to him. The Roman centurion defers to Paul. What do you think we should do, Paul? Paul is now a man who is going to be listened to. What I'm about to tell you, Paul, is implying what I'm about to tell you should be taken as credible. And though you have lost hope, I'm here to tell you that deliverance is certain. You will not die. We're going to lose the ship, but you will not die. And Paul, you may have lost hope, but the God whom I serve and worship has spoken. And I'm here to tell you what he has spoken. You will not die. So now Paul introduces them to the God of heaven. They're willing to listen. Previous to that, you're just some weird Jewish monotheistic Christian person who believes there's only one God and that's nuts. And now you should listen to me. And they do begin to listen. Basically, your gods have done nothing. And your skill is not enough, but there's a God in heaven. And he is going to deliver us. We are going to end up on some island. I love that, some island. I don't know which one, but we're going to be okay. He says, first of all, we must run aground on some island. The ship is going to be, this is amazing. The ship is going to be guided by God. Basically, they just get blown along. There's no rudder. There's no nothing. They're just in the wind. And they end up on this little dot called Malta. People who know this area much better than I do say, basically, if you miss this little dot in Malta, there's nothing. So this little dot in the sea, God guides them through a storm. They have no control over anything. And God directs them right to the Bay of Malta. It's a very interesting statement here, what Paul says. He says, Do not be afraid, Paul. The angel says to Paul, Do not be afraid. You must stand before Caesar and behold. Listen to this phrase. God has granted you all those who sail with you. In other words, it's not, Paul, you're going to survive. Everybody else is going to kind of, they're on their own. They're... Subjects of fate. God says, no, Paul, their lives have been granted to you. I'll expand on that in just a bit, but I think that's an interesting phrase. Paul has been granted all who respond. So Paul responds to this crisis by trusting in the word of God. And then on the 14th night, two weeks, two weeks, two weeks on this storm-tossed ship, They begin, they feel like they're nearing land. What ends up happening is a few of the sailors um, covertly, secretly um, untie the lifeboat and say, man, let's get this lifeboat off of here and let's jump in and we're going to be free. And this is what Paul says. Paul basically tells the centurion, listen, don't let them do it. If they get out of this ship, I can't guarantee anybody's life. They are about to 
perform a very tricky maneuver of crash landing this boat in this bay. And they are going to need all of the skills that these sailors have. If they leave, it's like, man, we are losing these skilled sailors who we are, it's going to be necessary to crash land us. So it's this tricky maneuver. If the skilled sailors abandon the task, that task becomes much more difficult. So you'll note Paul is now directing these events. He is trusted. And so the centurion listens to him and says, nope, cut the the lifeboat away. We're all in. We're all in. Find the bay, head for it, and crash land. And so they begin to prepare for land. Paul comforts them. He says, listen, man, we're going to make it. This is going to be okay. Let's eat something. It's been 14 days since you've eaten anything. And people think, well, man, 14 days, two weeks, and you haven't eaten anything. Why haven't they eaten? Well, I don't know. Have you ever been on a ship that's (laughs) in that kind of, it's like, you may eat, but it's not going to stay with you. All right. Even seasoned sailors, it's coming up. All right. So, um. Paul breaks bread. He gives thanks. This is not a communion meal. I know some people have thought, well, maybe this is a communion meal. It's not a communion meal. Number one, there's no cup. So um, Paul wouldn't have done a communion meal without representing the blood of Christ. And second of all, these are pagans, and Paul would have never served communion to an unbeliever. This is a meal. But Paul represents the, the God of heaven in this meal. God is now... Um, He thanks God for this. And so now they're looking for a suitable place to crash. And that really was relevant to me. I've been in many times on my bike where it's like, I know I'm going to crash. And it's like, well, there's a cactus there. There's a pile of rocks there. And, well, there's a little bit of flat ground there. It's like I'm aiming for that piece of flat ground. I can, if I can avoid the rocks and the cactus, I'm in pretty good shape. And that's pretty much what they're doing. They're like, oh, there's a, there's a bay. There's sand. Let's go for it. This is where we're going to crash land. Well, it's a good plan, except the ship gets stuck on a reef. Once it's stuck, the waves are starting to crash against the stern of the ship. It's going to break it apart. The uh, centurion yells, man, everybody overboard, jump in. And swim to shore. And if you can't swim, find a piece of wood or something and jump on it, some sort of flotation device. Jump on it and surf your way in. And our account ends with them being safe on the beach. What a story. Like I said, it's a pretty exciting story. It's one that... um, Literary people uh, give high praise to. It's one that um, certainly kids love to read. It's, it's a great story. Just about everybody loves it. The people who really don't love it that much are uh, pastors. Because we don't really know what to do with it. It's like, okay, now what? Why did God give us this 44, well, and then we actually go into next um, in chapter 28, why do we have this long account of this ship voyage? I mean, certainly, didn't Paul do miracles somewhere else? Or didn't he bring people to Christ? Or wasn't there something really spectacular happening at some other place? Why do we have 44 verses on this shipwreck? Well, I don't know if I can answer that question in completely thoroughly, but let me make a few theological reflections that I hope will encourage us and uh, enable us to live the life that Christ has called us to live and to trust in him and to recognize what's going on around us. And the first theological reflection I, I have, and I mentioned this in my introduction, we cannot escape the providence of God. The providence of God is that simply that God rules over his creation. God made it and God rules over what he made. And that tells us then that God is even sovereign in the storms. God is sovereign in this storm. I would argue that God caused the storm. See, in other words, sometimes we have this rather superstitious idea that difficulties mean that God is displeased with me. If I'm going through challenges, if times are tough, if this is a time of crisis, God, I must have done something wrong. Well, that's possible. We do see that in the Bible, but it's not necessary. Job is the perfect example. Difficulties are not necessarily evidence of God's 
displeasure often. What the crisis is, is they are events for God to display his greatness. God is seen in, as glorious and wonderful and majestic and powerful. And all of his beauty is seen in crisis. Maybe one of the great examples of this is in Matthew chapter 14, 22. You probably all know it. And that is this. Jesus had just got done feeding the 5,000. And then he told his disciples, get on the ship and I'll meet you on the other side. So you know what's about to happen, right? They get on the ship and they begin sailing. What happens? A storm comes up. Now, it's inconceivable to think that Jesus doesn't know that this storm is going to happen. And yet he sends his disciples smack dab into the middle of a storm. And they're like, we're going to die. We're going to die. And here comes Jesus walking on the water. Hey, guys. And their response. Truly, you are the son of God. The crisis demonstrates who Christ is. I mean, they could sail across. He can do mirror. You are the son of God. In other places, they were in storms and Jesus is sleeping and Jesus calms the storm. And and they say, who is this man? Whom even the waves and the wind listen to him. It is in these crises that God is magnified. These men in this ship have come to an end of themselves. They've done everything that a professional sailor can do, and they cannot save themselves. And God delivers them on some island. Because this is the God of Paul. God has made himself big. He is glorified. The other thing we see here is that Paul is vindicated. And this is going to be important as we get on to the island of Malta, but I'm, and I'm just going to let us get ahead of ourselves just a little bit. See, Paul is vindicated. If Paul is guilty, Paul dies in the storm. That's the way the, these Roman sailors would have seen things. They would have seen, well, guilty men die in, because, again, they're very superstitious. We'll see that next week when Paul gets bitten by a snake. What does what everybody say? Oh, he must have been a murderer to get bit by a snake. Right? And then it doesn't kill him. And then they say, oh, he must be a god. But God is not a superstitious God. He is delivering Paul. He is magnifying his name. He's making his name known. And he's making sure that everybody knows Paul is an innocent man. Not just to declare his innocence, but he is blameless before me, a holy God. He is my servant. He not only survives, but here's the thing. Everybody who trusts in Paul's words are going to survive as well. The God that Paul worships is powerful to save his own. So the first thing we want to recognize is that God is in charge. We live in a, in a world that is becoming at least our nation is unbelievably unstable in some ways. God is utterly and completely stable. And, and I pray and trust that he makes his name great in the midst of this. But here's another really interesting aspect. And this is that believers preserve. We are a preservative agent in a decaying world. We lose sight that godly people bring good even to a godless culture. Think about that. That the presence of godly people preserves and brings good to a godless culture. Let me just, very bold statement here. The unrighteous of the world are fortunate that there are believers. How can I say that? I can say it like this. Genesis chapter 18. Do you remember Abram is praying for Sodom and Gomorrah? Remember that famous prayer? And what does he say? God, if there's 50 people, Sodom and Gomorrah are wicked. I'm going to destroy them. But if there's 50 righteous people, I'll spare it. Okay. How about 45? Yep. 45 righteous people and I spare The wicked will live. My judgment will be abated if 45 righteous people are found. Well, how about 40? Maybe 30? 20? 
ten? Yeah, ten. Find ten, and I preserve wicked Sodom and Gomorrah. Well, he couldn't find ten, but so. But do do you understand that ten righteous people in this wicked city preserves the city? In Genesis chapter 30, verse 27, Laban is blessed because of Jacob's presence. He says this, the Lord has blessed me because of you. Laban's prospering. Laban is a wicked man. Not that Jacob's that much better, but Jacob is the called of God. And because of Jacob, I prosper. Further, in Genesis 39, chapter 5, Joseph's presence was the cause of Egypt's well-being. Listen to what what the text tells us. Uh, Genesis chapter 39, verse 5. It says, From the time that he made him overseer in his house and over all that he had, the Lord blessed the Egyptian's house for Joseph's sake. The blessing of the Lord was on all that he had in the house and field. The Lord blessed the Egyptians for Jacob's sake. Wow. You ever think about believers in this world are a preserving agent? You are the salt of the earth, Jesus said. That is a preserving agent. You are the salt of the earth. We um, uh, shouldn't go to your head as though like I'm something great, but I want you to know that our presence is a great benefit to a community. The Bible says that righteousness exalts a nation, that a nation is preserved by can be preserved because of the presence of those who call upon the name of the Lord. And so we see that here. These godless men are spared because of Paul's sake. Another, hopefully, helpful thing to see is we see true fellowship. True fellowship Sometimes when we think about fellowship, we we think fellowship is having coffee with one another or going out to dinner, and and that is fellowship. But fellowship as defined in in the New Testament, I like to describe it as this, holding everything with an open hand. I think that's a good description, holding everything with an open hand. We see that in Acts chapter chapter 2, 42 and following. Everything I have doesn't belong to me. I will use it for God's purposes. I will use my goods and I will use myself in order to... um, honor Christ. And here we see true fellowship. Historians tell us that the, there are really, um, that the way Luke and Aristarchus could have been on this ship, remember, this is, a, this is a prison ship. The way that Luke and Aristarchus get on this boat is to make themselves slaves of Paul. And as his servant, they get to accompany him. So they're like, fine, we will, we will humble ourselves under this man and he, he will be our Lord and we will be his servants. And that's how we're going to be able to benefit and bless our brother Paul. And then when he comes to the Sidonians, the Sidonians, you know, I, I don't know that Paul had ever been to Sidon before. We, we don't have any real record of that. They, in fact, they are probably the fruit. The church that is founded there is probably the result of Paul's persecutions when he was Saul. And so the reason that there is a church there is because Saul, the persecutor, um, persecuted their forefathers or maybe even some of the people living there. They fled to Sidon, and started a church. And now Saul, the one who persecuted them, shows up and they show kindness to him and take care of him. Man, here's the church. Here's the church. I am not the master of my own life. I serve my bro- I lay down my life for my friends. Luke and Aristarchus is like, what does it take to, to take care of my brother? I'm going to lay down my life. I will be his servant. The Sidonians, what are we going to do? Reminds me, and in conclusion, I'll mention this group again, German Moravians, 18th century sold themselves into slavery slavery to witness to the slaves in the Caribbean. They tried sharing the gospel with them, but they wouldn't listen to them because you're not one of us. 
So in order to reach people with the gospel, it's like, fine, I'll sell myself into slavery. And so, here is great fellowship. Finally, we see, well, not finally. You know what it it means when a preacher says finally, right? Yeah, nothing. Um, But I do, perhaps there, there are some some helps for us is how to respond in crisis and basically believe God. Don't be afraid. Paul is reminded, and it's interesting because Paul's even reminded of his, uh, of his previous promise. And, and even the angels tells Paul, don't be afraid. I think Paul's afraid. He's on the ship. He's, you know, Paul's like, listen, I got a task for you to do. Nothing's happening to you. He's reminded of a previous promise that he's going to proclaim the gospel in Rome. And so, um, they're believing God and they're using all the means at their disposal. All right? Paul's not denying that there's a... Paul's, first of first things, Paul is not just some happy-go-lucky guy like, so I'm just going to put a smile on, on this tragic, this, this difficult situation as though it doesn't exist. Paul realizes we're in a heap of trouble. But I'm going to be confident in the God who will deliver me whether he delivers me physically or not, I have hope that the word of God is faithful and true. And I just encourage us, we, we can be faithful in the challenges and the crises that, that we are facing today. We can recognize that, yeah, there's a problem. But what's the Christian response? Fear? Or trusting in a God who is sovereign and in control of over these things. Sometimes God needs to remind us of his promises as he did Paul. But I hope that we can respond well to crises. Paul keeps the Lord his priority. He does not just put on a happy face. Rather, he trusts the Lord. And he lets others know about the faithfulness of God. Sometimes I, I get a little frustrated. I'll sit down and we'll talk to people and 99.9% of the conversation is COVID. I don't deny COVID exists and that it's a dangerous thing. And I mean, look at us. We're, we try to social distance as much as we can. We wear masks. We do what we can. We got Facebook Live. I'm just saying. But what is my priority? What is my priority? I want to keep the Lord our priority. And he lets other people know about the faithfulness of God. He can say that God is faithful while not denying that there's a storm out there. He's made known God's revelation. He acknowledges God at the meal. Human ingenuity has failed, but God is faithful. So I'll conclude with this story. It's a story that I tell I've told before in this church, but I think it is relevant to us today. So um, listen to the story about another storm at sea. In late 1735, a ship was making its way to the New World from England. On board was a young Anglican minister, John Wesley. He'd been invited to serve as a pastor to British colonists in Savannah, Georgia. On his way here, to the new world, a storm hit, and the ship found itself in serious trouble. Wesley, who was a chaplain of the vessel, feared for his life. But he noticed that a group of German Moravians who were on their way to preach to the American Indians were not afraid at all. In fact, throughout the storm, they sang calmly. When the trip ended, he asked the Moravian leader about his serenity, and the, Moravians, the Moravian responded with a question. Did he, Wesley, have faith in Christ? Wesley said he did, but later he reflected, I fear my words were vain. Wesley's experience, Wesley goes to Georgia, and his experience in Georgia was an utter failure, both personally and ministry-wise. And so bitterly, Wesley returns to England. And after speaking with another Moravian in England, a man by the name of Peter Bowler, Wesley concluded that he lacked saving faith. 
And on May 24, 1738, he had an experience that changed everything. He describes this event in his journal. These are his words. In the evening, I went very unwillingly to a society at, in Aldersgate Street where one was reading Luther's preface to the Epistle of the Romans. About a quarter before nine, while he was describing the change which God works in the heart through faith in Christ, I felt my heart strangely warmed. I felt I did trust Christ, Christ alone for my salvation, and an assurance was given me that he had taken away my sins, even mine, and saved me from the law of sin and death. Here's my point. God used the Moravians trusting him during the storm to bring about the conversion of the great evangelist John Wesley. It was their calmness in the midst of crisis that caused John Wesley to think about his own salvation. God is sovereign over storms. And if you will trust him openly, if you will trust him openly, he will use you to bear witness to many who need to know the Savior, who alone can deliver us from the storm of God's wrath that is sure to come on the whole earth. What a great testimony. Because somebody responded in crisis, in trusting God. John Wesley was saved. And how many people came to know saving faith through John and Charles Wesley? Let's trust God. I don't know if it's going to bring revival. I just know that it honors Christ and it, it can serve to bring others to him. Father, we give you praise. We thank you that you are sovereign, that you rule over even storms, even crises. Lord God, are not wasted by you. Some of us may be going through difficulties, Lord God. I pray that we would lift our heads to heaven. We'd cry to you, Lord God. We would consider you and how to be faithful in the midst of these things. And let you be made great. Father, I, I pray that we would not think that somehow we are great and steadfast and we're steady and sure-footed in the storm, but you are great and majestic and marvelous in all of these things. And I pray, Father God, that you would be made great in trial and difficulty. So Lord, help us to trust you, to trust your word, and to love you with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength. These things we ask for Christ's sake. Amen.